you have to know when to get into the fight. And unfortunately, if you don't know when to get into a fight and all you've done is you relied on others getting you there, you're never going to be successful. Hello, Assyrian podcast family, and welcome to episode 68. We hope you didn't miss us too badly the last couple of weeks, but we're back with another wonderful, inspiring story to share with you. It's John here in Chicago, and I had the privilege of speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Sergis Sangeri. We covered his early years in Iran, acclimating to life in America, and a goosebump-inducing story of how an ancient Assyrian warrior carved the path for Sargis to join the military. Some of the stories he told were a stark reminder of the ultimate sacrifice that military members make and the toll it takes on a person and their family. We touched on his run for Congress representing Illinois' 9th District and the overall importance of Assyrians being involved in politics wherever they might live and also thinking strategically in the long term as opposed to being reactionary. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalagarakos and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalagarakos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 847- Nine eight two nine five one six. You've been waiting long enough, so without any further delay, here is episode sixty-eight with Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. You are the CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. There's a ton of detail on the website about that, but before we dive into anything else, can you give us a quick summary about the NECSE? Uh, I established the Neary Center for Strategic Engagement on September 11, 2014, after retiring from the military in honor of the 3,000 Americans that were murdered in the United States during the terrorist attacks. And uh, we are a strategic think tank, we're also operational and academic. The operational piece is where we supported the Syrian army operations in both Iraq and Syria, advised them. Uh, we have also supported the uh, Ravens Challenge, which is a specific requirement of training the various different EODs, explosive ordnance uh, disposal teams from around the world. We do that in Thailand in support of their operations. Uh, we were taking lessons learned from what we learned in Iraq, especially during the Mosul fight and in Syria, and we were actually teaching those lessons in Thailand to the world militaries. Uh, that's where the operational piece is. As far as the strategic think tank is concerned, we have given uh, advice to Office of Secretary of Defense. We have done it to the National Security Council, uh, both uh, administrations. Uh, we are done operational needs requirements for CENTCOM, uh, and uh, we try our best to ensure that those particular pieces that are done are in support of the Assyrian overall strategic mission or as far as our Assyrian foreign policy is concerned, 
the biggest piece that we did give to the U.S. military under the previous administration was Operation Collective Action, which was an actual written out plan with annexes on how to conduct this clearing operations for Mosul. And we're going to get into that a little more later on, but I want to give the audience a background about you as a person. So I want to transport all of us back briefly to the year 1980. You're 10 years old at the time, born and raised in Iran, and your family makes the decision to move to the United States. Why did they want to leave? We had family members here. My dad already had a sister. We had come here before the revolution just for a visit. Um, I've had uncles who served and cousins both in Korean War and Vietnam. Um, she made the recommendation to them that if their plan is for the kids to come here for their advanced studies, college, university level, why don't you just get their green card? So upon returning to Iran, we submitted our paperwork. Uh, that's when the revolution took place. Uh, unfortunately, most of our paperwork were shredded and burned in the uh, Tehran embassy, so we had to recreate all those documents to be able to leave. Um, we did come to the United States, left my two sisters here, older sisters, went back again. And then after that, once we were approved for the green card, we were able to depart. My dad stayed in uh, Iran for at least a couple of years trying to get uh, paperwork for the church done because of a lot of the land was being taken mm. away from us. Uh, and, uh, and that process was very difficult for me to be here, my dad not being um, in my life in the most critical times that I needed. And one uh, story that I have that I mentioned when I was in uh, Kuwait as I was doing the uh, uh, diplomatic mission there uh, was that uh, when we were in Tabriz on our way to see my mom receive an award for being one of the top teachers from our province, um, I remember my dad, I had asked him to buy me a toy. And that toy was actually an American uh, Jeep a soldier driving it. Wow. Uh, and that hotel that we stayed in, the balcony of the floor that we stayed in is on in flames during the Iranian Revolution. That's when in Tabriz where... Uh, you know, the, the flame started actually the store that I bought that Jeep from and the uh, uh, and the hotel balcony were completely burned. You see it in the Time magazine wow. uh, shot. And uh, that uh, particular toy is the only thing that left with me and I've still had it. And I said one day that toy is going to go back with that driver driving behind that Jeep, hopefully back to Iran. So, and you were about, what, eight or nine years old at that I, time, I, right? Correct, correct. I wow. was nine years old, ten years old when we left. So, And you were specifically from where in Iran? Uh, I was born in uh, Urmia, uh, but uh, my family is from the village of Sengar. Uh, my grandfather had put the I ending behind our name, Singeri. Because once uh, during World War One, everybody had left, he wanted to make sure that the I ending makes it Persian. That one day we could trace uh -huh. back our heritage to the village of Sengar uh, in Urmia, uh, Iran, uh, and that's basically how named Singeri, uh, based on the village that he was the uh, head of, uh, stuck with the uh, family. Do you remember living uh, amongst a lot of other Assyrians as well throughout your childhood? Yes, uh, we were amongst other Assyrians. Majority of the time, that's where we spent our time. Um, I did have friends that were Iranian, Persian, uh, of course, like any other child. 
but my main memories were in the village of Senga, which was an Assyrian village with uh, other young men and women uh, from that village that we spent time with during the summer. Did that experience give you a sense of kind of Assyrian patriotism or nationalism from that young of an age, or did that not come until a little later in life? You see glimpses of it, but the people who actually gave me the uh, flag or passed it on to me were my dad and my mom, and they did it through their work. Both of them were professionals. My dad was a physics professor uh, in Iran. My mom was a nationally recognized teacher. Um, and for them as Christians and Assyrians to have taken those steps, it, it did help. Uh, so I was always, uh, I always understood that there is an aspiration to what they were doing and why we had to achieve uh, the next step for our community. Uh, unfortunately, with the Iranian Revolution, of course, we lost a lot of the uh, uh, brain that the Assyrian community was trying to gather overall in Iran. Of course. Um, at the same time, with what happened in Iraq, we lost a lot of our uh, soldiers, uh, the ones who were fighting against the regime in Iraq. And then in Syria, where we had at least the hopes that we would have a constituted community that could support these efforts uh, with their ties to Lebanon that also ended up uh, going through this uh, global fight uh, over the period of the past 30 years. So uh, Assyrians had a 50-year vision to be able to get to a point where they could uh, take steps forward with a stronger, larger voice towards wanting to have their own uh, areas. Uh, especially in uh, Iraq, uh, but uh, that has, of course, taken a step back based on the fact that we lost a lot of what we had initially worked on in those three countries. So with you specifically in your childhood, there's these tumultuous times, you're, you're losing a lot of the Assyrian brain power, as you mentioned, but you did also mention that you had visited the United States previously, prior to the revolution. So how was the adjustment period for you as a 10-year-old learning different customs in a different language? Did you kind of absorb it like a sponge because you were so young and had experienced a little bit of that before? Or was it pretty difficult early on? No, for me, I've always had a switch that was turned on that I always wanted to win, uh, whether it be uh, on the uh, field of sports sure. in Iran um, or in academics wanting to be the best student that I could be to where it translates that switch doesn't turn off um, I remember the first time I walked into school in the United States and uh, the teacher said yes no I had no clue what she was saying <laughs> and I broke down crying because obviously I could not communicate at all uh, but uh, I gathered myself right away I remember that and uh, you said you gotta learn a language that's it you're in that environment now and uh, within a short period of time i scored the highest score on the u.s constitution test at wow. chapelle uh, grammar school so for me that was a pretty big uh, step forward and uh, it's just that you have to have that switch the the sooner it's turned on in you the better you are and it was really part of the character of the Syrian people in Iran, um, not just my family, uh, people I used to see on the farm working in Sangat, individuals who were uh, in school system, individuals who were in political structures of Iran, 
Uh, you know, I learned at an early stage, it doesn't matter what you do, do it to the best of your ability and do it uh, with pride. And that was probably the main motivating factor for me, of course, being a young man and seeing what is happening in Iran through our revolution, uh, survival being a major part of your livelihood, especially the fact every Friday night they would mention that uh, our our block was going to be attacked because we had multiple different ethnicities and people with political ties and ties to the sure. government on that block. It just became a uh, rallying cry for that uh, neighborhood to kind of stick together that block, set up barricades on both ends of the block. And uh, regardless of what your background or philosophy was or uh, whether you agreed with some individuals or not, whether they were on a different social level than you were, we all gathered together and defended that block. Um, and in a couple of cases, there were attacks against our block. Wow. Where, you know, I remember my mom was out just handing out whatever she could to the neighborhood kids who were fighting against these individuals who had uh, brought up a truck in there and were trying to attack one of the warehouses that were close to uh, the end of our block, uh, just trying to basically make sure that at least the family members that lived on that block were secure and And safe. when you say attack, do you mean like uh, vandalized, stuff destroyed? Uh, yes, vandalized, stuff de destroyed. Even um, um, I remember when the word was spread on the streets that my dad was working for the Savok security system. Uh, they, folks from the village had come in to take my sisters away to taken back to the village um, and uh, uh, you know they made the call no we're gonna stick together and my dad had the uh, gumption to basically walk right down the street and throughout the neighborhood and not worry about whether or not an attack would come basically uh, unfortunately that's the type of environment we lived in um, I remember that uh, uh, one of his friends who was a doctor uh, had not shown up home for a couple of days. Phone call came into him saying that, you know, we don't know where he is from his wife. My dad had uh, graduated a lot of the students uh, in uh, in Urmia. Uh, and it was funny because he would have the gendarmes and also folks that are, you know, with the revolution working together because of my dad being that glue that taught all of them trying to find this doctor. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he was executed at a checkpoint and had not been killed, was put on a freezer. And uh, my dad and uh, his students were able to at least find his body. Uh, unfortunately, he was executed again for the second time uh, once uh, they had tried to claim the body to bring him back. So those type of events, not knowing what's going on, uh, uh, times where they would just have us as kids leave the neighborhood and our home because knowing that after Friday prayers that there might be a uh, genuine attack against the block and we would have to go to my grandma's home which was uh, I would say maybe a mile plus away but you could hear the fighting with the bullets being fired uh, upon the crowds uh, when it was really at the peak of the revolution in, in Urmia. Uh, not knowing whether or not, you know, your parents were going to be 
safe or not. So those are the type of uh, situation that you kind of dealt with, which uh, really uh, create uh, long-lasting memories. Uh, in, I mean, that's a in, lot in for a, a child to absorb, but like you said, it, it kind of created this um, competitive streak within you, a will to win at all times. And you kept this going, obviously, throughout your teenage years. You went to DePaul University in 1994. You earned your bachelor's degree in political science from DePaul. Uh, how long after that did you begin your military career in the Army? I began my military career while I was at DePaul. I was working for the Osher um, Bunny Paul Library, which was at that time on Clark Avenue. I had initially started uh, the Assyrian High School Student Association where I was trying to get all the student associations together, all the high school Assyrian clubs, to basically do functions together, have a possible focus on what we want to do in the future process, kind of get the students together. And I actually started at DePaul. Uh, I should say Gordon Tech High School. Gordon Tech High School was a all-male high school, Catholic school. And it was just me and another Assyrian in, in the school at the time. But um, when I was working at Dominic's in the local Chicago area, there were a lot of Assyrians who worked there. I teamed up with a friend who was going to matter at that time. I said, I want to do this. Uh, I became the president. He became the de facto vice president. And uh, we tried to get the Assyrian clubs to be, to be a little bit more focused together. Sure. This was way before um, I joined the Osher Paul Library. Um, and at that time, we didn't have a gathering place. The Assyrian Universal Alliance Foundation was on Clark at the time. I asked if I could maybe use their facilities. And when the uh, guys at the library saw me working hard at this, it, you know, we had one party, one gathering, kind of um, trying to get us focused on what maybe the future bylaws or plans that we wanted to have. Uh, I was asked whether or not I want to join the library, and I joined the library. The Assyrian High School Association Club really didn't muster anything significant because they were just, you know, they didn't have the uh, mentorship or the leadership. Okay. They were kind of disjointed a little bit, and um, so we gathered. But we did gathering is one thing, trying to get you know something done that is for the benefit of the Syrian community just wasn't there yet. It really wasn't, we didn't know where to focus our efforts on. But see, that, that set a great precedent, actually, because now you do see more of that organization and mentorship from older generations. So yeah. you almost started that wave. It, it started it, and I also started the uh, 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 the um, uh, Assyrian Club in DePaul University. Uh, and it was hard because I was trying to my best to get individuals to join it sure. because they had a certain number to be able to meet the charter requirements for it. So I always was focused on those issues. So what happened was when I was at DePaul, at uh, the Austrian Paul Library, I remember we scheduled a lecture one time. Um, and I had at that time, you know, we didn't live in the modern world that we live today. Uh, we got uh, four posters done. Uh, these little small flyers, I should call it. And I walked in the rain uh, trying to get them from uh, location to location to where, you know, they would actually come to the talk. Um, and I was sick like a dog that day when I was walking the streets because I didn't have the car. My dad wasn't home. Uh, and uh, I, I just, 
uh, I, I was having a hard time with it. Uh, uh, that Saturday, we set up the uh, location on Clark. Uh, that place was just absolutely awful building. There were more <laughs> roaches there, and then there were probably Assyrians who came to see the books at the library. Uh, and uh, I remember a gentleman came in. He said, uh, where's your donuts? I said, well, I don't think we're going to have donuts today. We don't have the budget or uh, one of our friends <laughs> who was there hadn't gotten out to get the money and he left and uh, the speaker who came in uh, said uh, uh, he nobody came to listen to his speech said uh, you seem angry I said yes I'm into a lot for this but uh, obviously nobody cares he said look don't worry about others worry about yourself uh, at least you're here and you got my full attention and time what do you need and we discussed his book and uh, went through the process. Uh, that Sunday, uh, I was called by my friend who said, why don't you come back and let's clean up the library a little bit more. I didn't feel like it. I was, well, I'd watched my, um, I, I was sick like a dog. Nobody came to the talk. Uh, my baseball team's lost. Uh, the <laughs> football team lost. I was just not in a good mood. But uh, we ended up going to University of Chicago for a, a lecture. Uh, which I wasn't really looking forward to it because the lecture was about the fall of the city-state of Nineveh. Oh. And I'm like, that's all I need to finish up my weekend by this uh, depressing uh, Talk about another loss, right? Yes. But during that talk, a um, uh, German who had come back from recent digs was talking about uh, what they had discovered and in the process of being pushed by questions as to uh, you know, our modern Assyrians associated, linked to, you know, ancient Assyrians. Is there any, any type of uh, evidence that you may have found? And uh, he talked about a skeleton that was found at one of the cracks of the walls of Nineveh, which became known as the, sol you know, the unknown soldier. Uh, and this unknown soldier had basically stuck his body into the breach of the wall, defending this city as he had uh, taken a number of wounds uh, hoping that his uh, fellow soldiers from above the wall would be taking out the enemy wow. that was trying to crack come through that little crack now majority of the fight of course took in that uh, you know center of the uh, city state as the enemy was trying to flood the walls to be able to get another breach but at least he defended his location where nobody else was paying attention. I gave a talk on that in um, uh, 2015, January 25th, 2015, at an uh, Australian Universal Alliance event uh, in uh, uh, California. And I mentioned that story, and that was the significance of that story, was that that's when I decided I wanted to join the military. And I dedicated 20-plus years being in the in the forces because from my perspective that one soldier whose name will be remain irrelevant uh, on, on unknown for history sacrificed for that moment not knowing what the outcome was going to be and uh, uh, you know it motivated me to spend 20 plus years of my life in the uh, service of the United States military this nation and also my community that's powerful stuff that an ancient Assyrian thousands of years ago basically paved the way for a modern Assyrian to also join the military. Yeah, that, that sacrifice was significant to me. That's when I decided to do it. Uh, 
soap, you know, and, and then of course is a long story as far as what we've done. Of course, in the past yeah. And so joining the military wasn't necessarily always part of the plan. It was this lecture at University of Chicago where the the flip, or I should say, the switch kind of flipped there. Yes, that's basically where I said, "Yeah, I'm going to be in the fight," uh, and um, and obviously it was a big part of my life. Uh, and I think these are the small moments that sometimes we don't pay attention to. Um, yes. Now, if I went in there not being switched on to receive that message, I could have gone in there, listened to that message, left, and never joined the military. Sure, but uh, it's those messages that kind of uh, are inherent in you besides when i was younger my mom said uh, you know i used to buy you books <laughs> for you to read and you would like put them on their edges and you would have them fight each other <laughs> like their army so i was always kind of my interest was kind of peaked that way you were you know, a natural like, tactician yes. yeah. <laughs> it was always uh, wanting to do the hard part the tough part uh physical things uh and in this case uh uh, that story motivated me. I would recommend if anybody uh, wants to hear that story, it's the Assyrian Multi 101 um, is what I titled it. And uh, it talks about basically, you know, the spirits of the soldier and how they look at things. And uh, that we have all them, we have those soldiers everywhere uh, throughout our community. Uh, it's just that um, we have to find them. We have to organize them in the right direction they can become an absolute powerful force that is unstoppable and i think that's really the biggest piece for us as assyrians we we waste a lot of time on minuscule things that don't mean anything uh and we because we don't really have a focus on what the end goal is going to be uh, and because we don't pay attention to that end goal usually it uh, just has us go through time working in various different groups and organizations, but um, not focus on the overall piece, which for us needs to be a nation state. And actually, I want to touch on that a little bit later as well. But uh, firstly, the first few years of your military career alone took you to many different places, uh, stateside to places like Washington, Georgia, overseas in Bosnia and Croatia. What type of impact did that have on you? Did you see the world differently at all after those experiences? Did you see the Assyrian community differently at all after those experiences? No, you're never going to be the same person. I mean, uh, I'm not the same person uh, now as I was uh, 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes sure. ago when we started this interview. Um, because even re-looking back at some of my, my you know, stories, I don't revisit it that much. Um, and it gives me an opportunity to kind of re-look at some things, refocus. Uh, one thing I learned in the military, one of the things that we always did was uh, the old model of be no do. Uh, you gotta uh, be that individual, know who you are, and then do what you need to do to get to the next level. Uh, and uh, I was always pretty open as far as being blunt about where I am. Um, the army will humble you, trust me. Um, combat will humble you. It will humble you because uh, when I deployed the first time to Iraq, uh, I deployed with a four-man team. Um, at that time, there were only two teams. Uh, it was my team and my buddy's team throughout the entire country that supported all the levels of Siege of Sodaf and all the operational detachment alpha teams 
uh, for for a better term, for the Green Berets. Mm. And I had I was a team leader for my own alpha team that I took down to Alambar. And uh, I got to tell you, it doesn't matter that you're a lieutenant colonel. Um, you know, there's four of you. One person's sick, one person's wounded. Uh, you know, you're taking 25% of the workload and you have to split it up. And you have to be open to reading the situations quickly. Um, uh, there's times that I was behind the gun. There's times that I drove the vehicle. You can't have the same guy just sit behind the vehicle because that pucker factor is very tight, especially the fact that you're constantly getting blown up. We were blown up seven times with IEDs, my first tour. And uh, you have to work together. And there's no... Um, uh, there is no, I'm the boss, this is the way it is. Everybody understands you're the team leader. Uh, everybody knows who the team engineer is, who the team medic is, and who the team sergeant is. But trust me, uh, there you, there's some blunt discussions that take place. And you better be willing to hear that, listen, you screwed up. You're about to get, a, you're about to get us killed. Uh, and that discussion has to be blunt and open between the team. Uh, at the end, yes, I write their evaluations, I fill out their paperwork, I put them in for awards, but uh, uh, you have to be open and willing to, to be criticized. And I think that's one of the things that makes you stronger being in combat operations. I had a young man uh, that I brought to a mission. Um, I yanked him off of a convoy. When I realized that we were about to take the convoy into another city, I said, no, you're getting on a bird, uh, whether you like it or not. And five minutes later... A bird meaning a helicopter. Helicopter. And five minutes later, we're fishing out his body. So you make a decision that you think you're putting him in the safest position, but you get him killed and you get to pull that body out. Uh, I remember a friend of mine uh, in Fort Drum who was a G1, who was basically person who did the uh, HR, for a better term, on the civilian side, human, human resources. He had never been deployed. He said, look, uh, I would like to go. What do you think? I said, well, that's a decision you have to make. However, uh, I think you will always will regret it that you had an opportunity to go, but you didn't go. He was about to retire within three months. I said, you're doing a handoff anyway. As long as you're in a safe, secure facility, I would go. Uh, and based on my recommendation, he said, okay, I think I'd like to. Uh, I dropped him off with our finance guy, GG8, and my boss. And uh, within uh, less than 10 hours, uh, both of them were killed. My boss was wounded at the time. Uh, and I remember my parents had come to, uh, to Fort Drum to visit us. And uh, I knew that he was killed. He was my next door neighbor. And my kids were playing with his kid, uh, and his wife uh, um, was waiting. And I knew that the message would come that you know your husband has Ooh. been killed through casualty uh, affairs officer. And uh, you know she said, "Sargis, I don't feel good. I kind of had a sense of uh, my husband yesterday." And uh, I said, "You know, everything happens for a reason." Uh, and uh, you have to wait knowing that your advice is what may have had someone take a step where they ended up losing their life and, uh, uh, you know, then have the casualty 
assistance officer delivered a message within 50 minutes of that discussion that yes your husband has been killed and uh, it's hard seeing the you know uh, young man playing with his, with my you know kids uh, knowing that you know their dad of course won't come back um, Christmas uh, Eve uh, soldier being killed right about my head on a uh, uh, three-story building um, fully knowing who were the ones who probably killed them um, and then three months later uh, US government making a decision that Regardless that it was that group and that individual, you guys have to work with them now um, because there's a bigger strategic plan that we have for the region and having to eat out of the same communal plate that you would do with those individuals. So um, it's nothing personal. It's a professional business. These things happen. Uh, you realize these. Uh, first time I went out in the wire, uh, we were... We hit a pressure plate, uh, blew out the uh, uh, side of the vehicle on the driver's side as we were doing a left seat, right seat changeover. Uh, we towed that vehicle on the way back. Uh, when I was standing outside of my vehicle, the Marines pulled into our base camp. We received mortars and a tactical antenna above my head was taken out with shrapnel um, from those mortars. The next day going out, we changed directions of how we would Maneuver, we ended up running into an enemy checkpoint, um, shot up the overwatch position, uh, saved the wife of a uh, police intel officer who was about to be beheaded uh, by these uh, individuals. And on the way back, they tried to blow the bridge we were on. Um, so I remember coming back, shooting an email to my brother saying, look, uh, at this rate, <laughs> within the first 48 hours, I don't think I'm gonna make it out uh, for a six-month tour uh, if anything happens to me make sure Helen gets married because Osher is gonna need a dad I mean Helen was gonna make that decision I'm sure but I just wanted to make sure that at least my brother had gotten the information that it's okay if that happens so these things are what makes you understand that behind the decisions you make there's consequences and frankly I'm much more comfortable talking and working and dealing with individuals who understand the consequences of life or death and their effects on others. Uh, and uh, that was one of the reasons I even decided to run for office. And I have always encouraged, if you're a military guy who's serving in combat for where our country is heading today, uh, we need you to step up and run either Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter. But uh, there's a lot of folks that are up in D.C. that have brief, dealt with, talked to, worked with, that have absolutely no concept of the consequences behind the decisions they make or what they say. You have a lot of that instant accountability that you have to take into consideration when you're in the military. Obviously, like you just told us, there were a lot of life and death situations where you weren't even sure you were going to make it through. Um, one of the bigger uh, two battles that I think a lot of the American public and really a lot of people around the world were familiar with were the two battles in Fallujah. Uh, and you were stationed at one point in the El Anbar province of Iraq. Uh, do you remember when you were there exactly and for how long? Yeah, we were there from 06 and 07. Um, and we stayed there for the surge uh, in support of the surge. I, we did get a chance to come back for a short period and go. Um, I think the biggest thing from that is also the effects on the family. I remember uh, my oldest son uh, 
I remember him kind of at the airports hanging back. He had put sunglasses on. Uh, and we're talking about now he's a, he's a baby pretty much, you know. Uh, and uh, I could see him crying because, you know, I just showed up and I'm leaving again. Yeah. And there's no guarantee that you're coming back because you've seen what is happening downrange. Uh, I remember just after the surge was over, we're flying back. At every stop we stopped, we picked up a body of a soldier. And when the body is so badly uh, mangled because of the combat uh, wounds, um, they won't say the name. They'll just, you know, say basically a soldier. Uh, and um, and we didn't have the facilities there to put those bodies on, on uh, to clean them up properly. Uh, so they would be on ice. I remember our second stop, uh, the, the airfield took on some mortar hits. Uh, we had to wait for a while. It was a hot day. And, uh, uh, you know, those bodies start, you know, defrosting and you could smell the uh, smell uh, the stench. And uh, as we were flying into Kuwait, uh, you know, you're sitting there, you touch his, your leg is touching the uh, casket. Uh, and I have four you know, servicemen that I'm bringing back that have been uh, killed in combat, and that could have been my entire team. That could have been me and, you know, uh, my team engineer, team medic, and uh, team sergeant. Um, and I'm leaving the names out because I, I, I don't want to. Of that's course. personal to them. I don't want to be use their names at all here. Uh, so that's the type of experience you kind of go through. U.S. did the best it can uh, with what it had. How did the U.S. system digest uh, what was given to them? It doesn't digest it well because our systems are not set up in a way where we can have a long-term form policy uh, because of just the way our government turns over. Bureaucracy? Uh, a bureaucracy, but I think mostly how we're were organized and mm. I could get into that a little bit later uh, in, the, in the conversation uh, but um, you know soldiers served um, came back uh, and uh, it changes you as a person like you leave um, blood sweat uh, tears uh, time away from the family everything on the uh, on the battlefield and then you turn around and now that I go back as the CEO of the Near East or when I go back as the uh, founder for United Australian Appeal to, to help with humanitarian affairs. Um, you know, a lot of those areas uh, I lost friends in. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you exactly where they were killed or, you know, where those combat operations took place. And we haven't turned them over to the best, most capable uh, allies that uh, we would like to turn, them, turn those areas over to. But 2011, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom was effectively over with. You had made it out, thankfully. And your final landing spot in your military career was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center in school, also known as SWIC. Uh, how was that decision made for you to end up there? Was that your choice? Were you assigned there by a superior? Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> some of I could get into some of it I can, but... Uh, uh, I had uh, taken a diplomatic mission in, in Kuwait. Uh, I had prepared a special skills initiative which where we had taken state 
And that was my initiative that I put together actually for the U.S. military for the first time to kind of take state folks and try to merge them with the active duty component of U.S. Army Special uh, Operational Forces in case uh, of the civil affairs and the PSYOPs side. Now, my plan was to go there, but what they decided to do prior to my deployment to be the G9 position, which would help me in advancement and career, I saw that they started taking all the toys, for the better term, away from me uh, because NATO was restructuring. So I would have been in that position, I realized that I would get all the blame and would not have any way of, you know, uh, fixing the problem because the assets would not belong to me. Uh, and because of that, when uh, I was offered uh, by my branch to maybe look at going to Kuwait, and the reason I took the Kuwait assignment was because um, two out of the past three directors for Holston Eastern Affairs were investigated and were, you know, uh, ended up basically losing their careers because of the type of work they had to do. Wow. And because of our request, uh, said, Singari, can you clean up some of the mess down there? I took that mission. Um, it was a hell of a mission, let's just say that. Uh, as much as it was a diplomatic mission, um, and I took my family there with me, uh, we were on the chief of mission, it was very difficult because of how the organizations were structured. Uh, but uh, everything that came into the theater of operation that launched the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq came because of my signature. Wow. Uh, my office was actually bigger than the uh, Third Army commander's uh, office because the Kuwaitis had recognized that position as being a major general equivalent. Uh, and uh, so I was able to really uh, move that office into the Kuwaiti military headquarters, working for the chief of staff with the chief of staff of the Kuwaiti military for what our enduring policies would be in the future. I remember we had been at an impasse for budgetary requirements with the Kuwaiti government for over a uh, eight month period without having the specific meetings that you had to have based on the uh, defense cooperation agreement. And within a couple of months, I was able to open that door, get those meetings going again. Uh, and uh, uh, I learned early and often, be truthful with people, don't try to sugarcoat anything, be blunt and to the point. So there was another investigation, and this investigation became a larger investigation. It, uh, some of it was tied to what was happening in Libya at the time. Wow. So that's why I can't get into the details of it. Uh, and uh, my branch chief in that case, the general said, hey, let's bring you back here, um, and we want you to work at SWIC. Uh, to try to look at what we might want to do in the future with uh, our abilities. Uh, now, um, the initial decision was that I would be assigned to CENTCOM in Tampa, but the billet belonged to Special Operational Command in Fort Bragg, and the position sat in SWIC, which is just a crazy way the government works. Uh, when I was there, I... Uh, uh, was asked by a friend of mine when I had some downtime, can you take a look at this language uh, um, uh, contract that we have for uh, language school? Um, I realized that it was a, a 
they had made a mistake. They had given it to a contracting officer who had given it to Defense Language Institute who had subcontracted it to some contractor who had absolutely no clue what the heck they were doing. So when I brought that issue about, the, they decided to suck me in and have me become the uh, director for basic language course and help with training the advanced language students. This is all the special operation forces from uh, Rangers, Delta, Special Forces, Civil Affairs, and PSYOPs put together. And then I worked, the last thing I worked on was the Matrix and what the 2022 vision was for the commander of how our special operations need to evolve. Uh, for our special operational forces, which was under the seventh war fighting function. Uh, and uh, part of what we did with the Syrian army operations, I basically beta tested whether or not that what I, the plan that we had put together was going to actually work, which I had worked on specifically uh, trying to get it to be taught at the lower levels for my position. And uh, that's uh, another story by itself. So to paint the picture for our audience, uh, the year is now 2014, and it's all about civilian life for you again after 20 years in the Army. Uh, on September 11th specifically, as you had mentioned at the, the start of our discussion here, uh, you established the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. You explained uh, what this was at the start of the talk, but what was your ultimate goal in starting this institution? You're sitting there and you're, you're brainstorming all these ideas. What, what do you ultimately want to accomplish with this? In 2006, we started picking up folks on battlefields, and some were saying we're Al-Qaeda, and a number were saying we're Islamic State. So at that time, we didn't know what is the difference, who are these Islamic State folks? And there's a linkage there where when I was in Iraq, my first time in Alambar, um, family members from my tribe had approached me uh, in discussions that uh, the head of the tribe was put into Buka uh, based on false reporting um, and false evidence. Uh, and I told them that... Uh, I will look into the case if, if guilty stays. If not, I'll do my best to try to get him out. Um, and that individual is the individual who is today known as a, a head of uh, ISIS. Oh, wow. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi at that time, he knew that he was a large uh, capability. And I knew that they were going to release him shortly anyway because of the time given. Uh, so, uh, and that was time given by is that just time Geneva Convention, by, or is that time given by whatever decisions I made in the Iraqi courts at the okay. time? Um, so, I made sure that in talking with the Fifth Special Forces group guys, that we got to get this guy out on our dime rather than him just leaving. Uh, and it's funny how everybody went into prison and they developed these networks in prison better than they did when they were not in prison. Um, fast forward to where we are today, I knew that we were going to have changes take place in the area. Going back to even 2010, when we saw what was happening in Libya, a change was going to take place in the Middle East. I did talk to my wife about it. I said, look, uh, 
I do want to help the Australians. I've spent 20 plus years specifically in the military going through all these pains, tribulations, because I have an ultimate goal for the Australians to have their own place in the future. Um, and I don't think I could do it if I'm in the system. I introduced the idea of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement initially to my command. Uh, I went to Kuwait um, as a non-military deployment to try to get the Near East to be a footprint for our U.S. Special Forces in Kuwait and in the Gulf regions because I kind of saw this fight that might take place between the Sunnis and the Shia, especially Iran and Saudi. And the Gulf states were going to become very key to this process. Remember, when you sign the do documents for every piece of item that comes in that goes to support the Afghan war and the uh, Iraq war, you kind of have a much more strategic understanding of what is going on. Um, and in that process, the big army did not want it. Uh, special forces did not want to get in a fight with the big army on having that footprint. Um, went back again to how the system was mismanaged to an extent as far as how it was structured. And uh, I told uh, my boss, I said, sir, in uh, the Near East is my creation. I want you to give it to me on paper. So my last evaluation actually says that I created the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. It was going to be the Army's piece. But if the Army didn't want it, as I told my boss, I'll take it, I'll bring it back, and then I'll charge the government millions for what I'm trying to give them to for free in the future. And it's the same concept of having a footprint in all these countries to also work with your I-5 uh, capabilities. Um, and uh, uh, it, it is an expansion of what my large-term view was for trying to have strategic say to take all this fodder that is taking place and kind of this clutter and sinking it at the strategic levels. So it's uh, based on three lines of operation, governance, development, security. Of course, how do we do it? From 2014, I focused on security with the Syrian army operations in Iraq and Syria. Later on, once the fighting was done, Mosul was cleared, uh, a Syrian in a plane, which we're the first ones to use that term, uh, was finally reestablished um, as far as uh, the fight between the Iraqi and the Kurd finally kind of, you know, washed itself out in the political arena and the uh, operational arena. We focus on the governance uh, today. The commander of the Assyrian forces at that time, Emmanuel Khoshaba, because of our focus on governance, is now sitting as a member of parliament in the Iraqi parliament. And now we're transitioning to the development process where UAA is now registered United Australian Appeal under the SAM requirement for the government to look at possibly developing that area uh, specifically for needs that you may have, a, uh, you know, uh, an, a, and, and I got to choose my words carefully here because uh, we don't, we don't nation build anymore. Sure. Okay. 
So let's put that out on the table. But we could still build in a way that if a nation develops, all the mechanisms that a nation needs are there. And it becomes a seamless transition. And that's what our focus is going forward now. When you say from 2014 that you provided training and support for the Assyrian army, is Assyrian army a general umbrella name for different militia groups? Or was there actually one united Assyrian army? There was one united Assyrian army. Um, now, um, people will say uh, that there's a militia called Dwechnosha. But what you saw was just a kind of a glimpse. What we did operationally in Syria and Iraq, even targeting packages that were given to CENTCOM were given under a certain army target package 001. Okay, so <laughs> that's what the Syrian army was. It was an operational capability. Now, we couldn't come out and tell people, look, we have an army out here operating, stop creating these militias or units sure. and uh, these protection units, whatever you want to call them. They're a disaster. They're not going to work. You're you're starting to get into our operational tempo. You're screwing it up. Uh, but uh, you can't just come out and say, hey, I'm doing these operations. I'm doing them here. It doesn't work that way. So you got to bite your tongue uh, a lot of times. Uh, I'll give you as an example. We were doing operations in Alambar, and one of the U.S. agencies was constantly working against us. Uh, and... Uh, when uh, the contracting officer for the Marines found that out, said, why don't I just go and stop it? I said, you know, you can't stop it. Just let it happen. He was like, yeah, but this guy's just defeating everything you're trying to do. It might even get you guys killed. I said, yeah, but there's a barge you need. Let them just do what they're doing. Uh, some things you don't want to open up the door on. And that was us. Uh, they, one of the reasons I was invited to speak uh, at the... Um, uh, in January at the Assyrian Universal Alliance uh, talk, um, and I talked about the you know, uh, soldier on the wall. I was trying to get our folks that were trying to create these militias to understand indirectly, you don't want to do that. I was asked by a young lady during the question and answer period, how long do we have? I said, if you keep this up, you get a month. A month later, Harbor River got cleansed out because people were creating things that were sucking away from our effort. Taking away uh, resources, yeah, essentially. Uh, resources, mostly personnel, money, time, because the government cannot work on two different aspects. And when we finally had to come out and put everything in front of the office of Secretary of Defense, I remember the, uh, because she's a good friend of a, uh, a very close friend of mine, she started crying. Uh, the colonel started crying because she couldn't look me in the eye because she realized every time she was signing paperwork, she was basically screwing everything that I was working on. And I said, it's okay. These things happen in, in war. It's just part of a process. It's frustrating for us uh, to know that we got individuals who don't have any military capability training just doing things because they just want to do something for the Assyrians and trying to Tell them stop by not telling them why they need to stop it was very difficult. Um, but uh, it is okay. Uh, it, these things happen. Uh, one day the book will be written, the stories will be told, and I think the Assyrians will be very proud of 
what the Australian Army did and has done and still continues to do just because we're not on a battlefield, we've taken them off, that doesn't mean don't operate. The way the global community tried to teach the Australians that, look, you have a capability here is don't screw it up was by where we had Americans come join in the defensive positions, Japanese, Koreans, Australians, but the Australians never caught on. They just never, because they don't have this strategic vision on where their end state is. They just never caught on. Um, Tanaya, you can be, you could be very patriotic, but if you don't have a strategic vision, you could be Einstein. If you don't have sure. a final vision, nobody cares. You're going to be constantly screwing up everything. And then the other way that finally came out that we figured the Syrians will figure out, give support to the Syrian army capability, was when ISIS declared war against them at the same time in their magazine they were declaring war against France before they attacked France. And the Syrians never still figure out, well, why is ISIS declaring war against these guys? Because they finally figure out somebody's whacking in Syria and Iraq. Just because I'm not putting it on uh, your local TV shows or your satellite station doesn't mean I'm not doing it. In, in my business, you can't just put that stuff up. Even our donors or the families, we have to block out their eyes when we were raising funding for right. them uh, because they would be targeted. And not just by the enemy, by some of our so-called allies that we work with uh, because they want to make sure that this capability does not become a capability that takes away from their strategic points and visions uh, in the long run. So that's just what we had to go through so really in a nutshell a lot of stuff was on a, a need-to-know basis due to everybody's safety really but because of that since you couldn't put everything out in the open it created sort of internal competition that people didn't realize was even competition at the time yes and Assyrians kept on doing it uh, look um, there were systems that were created by the u.s to take Assyrian young men and stick them in certain organizations or what they call um, uh, structures. But we knew that those structures are not army capabilities and they were not going to be able to do what we're doing. There's no way. Uh, unfortunately, when the U.S. starts creating something, it's not going to destroy it. It hopes that it comes to an end by itself. Mm -hmm. Because remember, when you allocate money off of Title 22 functional budget $150, you're stuck. I remember when we sat at the State Department um, and you saw the fight amongst the State Department folks. It's like, well, we already started this organization, this protection unit. We can't go and support these guys. That's, you know, you get the guy from the, you know, LNO to uh, an agency over there having this argument with the state folks. And we're like, look, we're not trying to compete against other organizations. Right. You guys did that. Yes, you didn't know that I was doing these operations. And part of the reason I did these operations was because I didn't want to come tell you, give me money, I'm going to go do an operation. I went and did it and came and said, I've done these operations and your agencies and I was doing the operations. Okay, now let's negotiate at the strategic level. Uh, and uh, they said, no, you got to go register under the uh, uh, Iraqi uh, um, multi-structure and that at that time, they were pushing these um, militia organizations, basically. And uh, I remember when I said to the uh, young lady, yeah, we'll do it. And her head turned to the far left. She said, really? 
I said, you know, no, of course. Afterwards, I said, we're not going to do it. But you saw how ridiculous your question is. Others didn't understand because they just say, okay, State Department told us we got to do this. Let's go do this. Check the block. Okay, now I got to go. There. Oh, okay, I'm going to get this money. Okay, check the block. Okay, I got to do this to get this. You're working for somebody. You have no strategic vision. You either will become a cashier who will hand out money as a uh, you know not-for-profit organization for the U.S. whose interests are not going to be at times aligned with the certain foreign policy. Or you are going to be an individual who is never going to be in char charge of your own destiny. It's better for them to know your ability and know that you could bring that force to bear anytime you want. There's a lot of things that uh, we have that are on the books at the State Department and uh, National Security Council that uh, we did it in a way that it would not be held for 35 years. It could be released at any given time. Uh, and uh, um, it will set the record as to how you need to approach foreign policy from a certain perspective at the international level. And it cannot be at operational tactical level, not knowing what the end goal is. In this case, is establishment of an Assyrian state. So this leads to a question that um, is actually really well put by our host Ninorta out of Arizona. Based on your expansive knowledge and expertise in Middle East affairs, what do you foresee as the best case scenario for our people in the homeland? And what can we as Assyrians in the diaspora do to help get to that goal? You are closer to having an Assyrian state today than you were at any time in your history. But Assyrians have to understand that. And I don't think they do. They just don't see it because they don't operate at the strategic levels. They don't understand and link analysis. They don't know what's happening in the region. Look. We knew that a new change was going to take place in the Middle East. Why? Because there was a 100-year contract with the French and the British. It was called a sex beacon and was running out. 20 years, 25 years prior to it running out, you have to start negotiating new contracts. That's just the way it works. And uh, our people never digested those things. Assyrians are never preemptive in their focus. They don't look at, okay, where am I going to be in 10 years? I wrote, when I'm sitting at SWIC and the commander is saying, okay, 2022 vision. Okay, what the U.S. Special Operations Forces have to look like. When I'm writing that piece of paper, I have to know everything about everything. How the forces are going to be structured, what is a new generation of people coming in, what are the new technologies out there, what are the technologies that we haven't seen out there, what are the capabilities of our adversaries, what the global climate looks like economically. I have to know all this stuff when I'm writing one sentence in that piece of document. Uh, Assyrians go and protest when ISIS attacks. Well, I was picking up guys that were part of ISIS in 06, 07. You got a member of parliament who was an Assyrian, five members of parliament who were getting briefed. Why are you shocked that ISIS is going through Mosul and toppling you? I mean, you should know these things. These are the things you have to know. Don't be just reactive. Have a long-term vision. 
And unfortunately, our folks don't have those long-term visions. Every time a citizen went out and protested about the genocide, God bless them. But where were you 10 years ago knowing that this genocide would happen? Because there's been a genocide against the Syrians every generation, which is every 10 years is a generation. So, I mean, it, you got to be able to have those understanding. There's, a, there's, there's some concrete things that you have to understand exist. And you have to be able to uh, have individuals who are long-term uh, looking at these particular perspective. As much as Assyrians tell, tell me that, you know, we're very uh, umtanaya, we are very Assyrian nationalistic folks. I say if you were, you wouldn't be bashing each other over the heads every day. One political party over another one. Let's you say would be bearing the hatches over the head of the, your enemies. Even if that enemy may have to be some of the Western nations that you work with. Or win it. What would your best advice be for Syrians or for anybody in general who tends to be reactionary and doesn't look long term to be more proactive? Because somebody can play devil's advocate and say to you, you were on the ground in 06 and you had a better idea of what might be going on. Whereas people around the world who are dispersed uh, might not know as much as somebody in your position with firsthand knowledge. Yeah, but uh, if we all come together and there's the same uh, focus at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right? I could be a military guy. You could be a uh, podcast guy. You could be mm -hmm. a uh, journalist. You could be a guy who works on drone technology. If the focus is there, all that knowledge, all that intelligence can be put together for benefit. Look, what is the biggest problem that the U.S. has? We feed intelligence into the system. The system can't digest it right. They burn all that intelligence. There's a reason even our relationship with the state of Israel is not strong because Israel is tired of giving intelligence to the U.S. It screws it up all the time. So there's no benefit for them. Just like there's no benefit to some Assyrians saying, well, I mean, I gave you this, I gave you this, and this is a, you know, this is an outcome, which was really bad outcome. Uh, I spend... 20 plus years in the U.S. Army. That 20 years have been blown up my first time seven times. I've had multiple skull fractures, brain seizures, contusions, collapsed lungs, busted nose, busted eye socket, broken jaw, torn labrum, torn rotator cuff, blown bicep, torn tricep, uh, broken feet, uh, tuberculosis in Korea, bird flu in Thailand, uh, internal bleedings with two scopings, um, uh, leg doesn't even work because of some of the environmental issues um, uh, sometimes uh, the body has taken a beating I went through all that I established an office of uh, I established an area center for strategic engagement four years of intense work uh, briefing the National Security Council we even uh, were giving reports to the uh, PSIA of Japan which is their level of central intelligence agency uh, because trying to make sure that they understand how this whole global fight is taking place. And I can talk about it because I don't have a uh, non-disclosure statement with them. Uh, brief, uh, given operational planning to uh, folks out of Office of Secretary of Defense, how to operate out of CENTCOM, um, all these things, establish a UAA, raising money. If people have gone to the United Australian Appeal site, we've had individuals like John Sununu, Dr. Gorka at the time, um, um, and a number of other people who said, give money to UAA. Again, Australians still didn't understand why are these people coming and saying, give money to them, because they obviously knew something that others didn't within the system. But with all that said, 
when I sit in front of a decision maker, I only get 12 seconds and three sentences. That's it. And in those three sentences and 12 seconds, I have to convince that decision maker to say, that's what we're going to do. And that person has to pick up the phone, call the Russians, call the Chinese, call the Japanese, call the Europeans, call the Israelis and say, this is what we're going to do. And they have to call the Iranians, they have to call the, the Syrians, they have to call the Saudis and say, this is what we're going to do in support of an Assyrian foreign policy. Okay? That's all you get. So what do I have to do to get there? I have to go through a lot of pain, a lot of training, a lot of operations, surviving on the battlefield and killing the enemy before the enemy kills me, knowing everything, going through all these tribulations just to get to that point. And unfortunately, I think we have Assyrians who don't understand the long-term vision that they have to have policy and how dedicated they have to do, be to the mission to get them to that level. And there's no guarantee that just because I said that to the decision maker that that decision maker is going to agree. So I have to know who that person has to be and when I have to brief him. I've had individuals come up to me and say, why don't you go talk to the CIA director on these issues? I said, the CIA director is this big compared to how Washington works. Sure. Not even a part of a glimpse into the Washington hmm. operations. So I have to know how Washington works. I have to know how State Department works. After you know how the Iraqi government works. I have to know how the uh, Japanese uh, work when it, with credit when they buy U.S. debt. I have to know all these things. You have to know everything about everything just to get to a point and choose the right timing for the right battlefield to deliver that message. So it takes time getting yourself set. Uh Assyrians have to understand that. I mean, the biggest example was set for, for, for us as Christians was Jesus. Jesus took 30 years, and he was a son of God, to get himself set right to be able to deliver the message. And then in three years, he accomplished his mission. He scored a goal. You have to know when to get into the fight. And unfortunately, if you don't know when to get into a fight, and all you've done is you relied on others getting you there, you're never going to be successful. The entire United States government can stand behind and say, this is our guy. Guess what? You're still not in charge of Venezuela. Because you got to get yourself there, not somebody else get you there. The entire U.S. can come in and say, these are the Christians, we want them protected. The entire NATO can say, these are Christians, we want them protected. Okay, under NATO, under the United States military, under every major force being on the ground battlefield, you went from a million to basically 200,000. Because you still don't understand the concept that you got to prep yourself to get to that level. And you got to do it on your own. You cannot do it thinking others, because the others' interests will not be in line with your foreign policy. Your foreign policy can help complement theirs. But yours got to be specific to you. And that has to be an end state of a nation state. And it takes 30, 40, 50 years to get there individually. So, Assyrians, you want to help? Get your degrees done. Get yourself strong. Get yourself financially ready. Regardless of what you're doing. Get your family set in the right position. And then 
let's work on getting using that talent that you have to get to where we need to be which is in this state format that uh, would be the only way that Assyrians are going to survive globally. Throughout all this, all the trials and tribulations throughout your military career, a lot of ups and downs, you still kept that, that winner switch on, that, that fight, uh, that drive, the, the competitive edge that you often have. And in 2018, uh, you made a run for Congress in Illinois' 9th District. How long had you been considering a run for office, considering that the last, you know, the previous 20 years of your life were so preoccupied with, uh, you know, military deployments? You cannot come out of the military and then run for Congress. Uh, it takes a number of years to take off the military uniform. You could be retired, but it took five years just to even change my language of how I talked, how I focus on things. I'm still not fully civilianized, as you might say. It was a meeting that took place here with a defense uh, secretary. Um, and I, I'll say his name, Dash Pennington, came down here to meet with the Syrian community. Uh, he was told by the State Department National Security Council to go sit down and talk to Colonel Singiri. So not only was I there for the big meeting that he had, he we met later on on the offsite here in Skokie and he was curious as to why am I sitting here talking to you? Why is the State Department and the National Security Council saying talk to Colonel Singiri? And I kind of laid out everything we had done. There was a document that was signed by the Australian political parties, all of them together. It's uh, the 10 parties signed it. That document was a process where we had worked on for six years just to get there. When in a weekend of me going down there with a couple of friends uh, from the U.S. government, we were able to get a sign. That document was sitting on the gentleman's desk in March. He had no clue that that document was out there. And my biggest issue was, listen to me, why do you not know that this document's out there? Well, we're not ready. Why are you not ready? Why am these guys are ready? Why are you not ready? And at the time that I met with him and the gentleman who was with him, both of them had given money to the Hillary campaign. And I knew that they were going to go sit in a meeting with Jan Shkowsky. And she had a number of Assyrians, especially Assyrian women who were in that meeting with her. And she basically chewed him up and down saying, you're not doing your job. But that's all for show to the community that we're doing something for you. At the end, they all worked. They all were tied together. Why? Because they all had given money to the same, you know, campaign. That's when I said, I came back to my wife. I said, you know what? This is not going to work. Assyrians, we need to have a voice at the table. And I don't care who you are. You could be an Australian, a certain Australia, voting for some guy to get in and the conservatives just won't recently. Mm -hmm. Or you could be an Australian here who's voting for Ganskowski or whoever to to be there. They're not there to represent you because they don't they're not there on your foreign policy. They don't have this long term vision that you have. You gotta get your folks in. And I said, look one thing that ISIS taught us is Assyrians, you're a lot of talk, but you ain't got nothing. Okay? 
you political folks were doing this for Unta, you got rolled up. Okay? Incompetent. Now, no vision in the long term. Organizations here, no capability of bad feeding anything. Uh, humanitarian and assistance for folks, not even prepared. Groups started sprouting out later. Even United Australian Appeal, which is the organizer I founded, I've told folks it was a policy failure for the U.S. that I had to do this, but I set it up so we could support the multifamilies, and we still do. All this put together, I wanted to show the Assyrians, if you're telling me that you're really powerful and capable in the U.S., then I'm going to show you that you're not. Iran. You want to flip the 9th Congressional District, all you need is Skokie and parts of Evanston. That's it. You'll, you'll defeat one of the strongest Congress people here. The mayor of Skokie says we have 17,000 Assyrians. Mm -hmm. that, that flips the Skokie. Where were you? Are you registered to vote? No. Are you capable of voting? Yes. So... It was to open the door and kind of show the Assyrians, look, I want to break you down a little bit to tell you all this talk, this, this, this. You have to show through your actions that you're capable. And until you show you're capable, nobody will take you seriously. So if you're here and you're not even registered to vote, I don't want to hear from you about Umte and Atur. Just stop talking. Um, if you're back in the old country you're saying i'm leading the Assyrian nation the operations i did you didn't even think about doing so i don't want to hear you either okay uh, we got to get to where we truly look internal to ourselves remember i said be no do model who are you if you take true stock about who we are we're disorganized we're not focused Nobody can tell you what the strategic aim is at the end of the day. And we're expending a lot of effort. But we're not expending it in a way that can force the systems here overseas, in Australia, in Iraq, in Russia, in China, wherever you are, to get this collective support behind us certain people. And the government of um, uh, the West are looking and saying, you know, we want you guys to succeed. You just got to show us a little bit that you're able to operate at the strategic level. And I told you, it's taking me all that time, all these years, and I don't just walk into a decision maker's office and tell him something because I know it's not time yet to say that to him. But you got some, you know, young Assyrian activists, five minutes on the scene going over there and saying things that makes it more difficult for me. Okay, God bless you, but focus. Focus what you're saying, whether or not it's going to achieve the state of an Assyrian state for us. So let me know, let the Assyrian podcast audience know, what's the first step to take in order to truly think strategically and long term? You got to be independent. Make yourself independent. I came in, I did not go join a Shotaputa or any organizations. If something hasn't worked in 100 years, folks, it ain't going to work tomorrow. I created the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement on my own as a CEO. Why? Because I'm to blame if it's not successful. I cannot go into a short path. It's easy. Go in there. Guy's been sitting there 20 years. 
he leaves his son takes over and say, oh, well, you know, shut up, it's not, not working. That's, that's not leadership, okay? We all know that's not working. Go create something else that will work, okay? I created it. I created the United Assembly Appeal because you can't lie on dollars. To show transparency, where we put our tax records up, uh, we're open our books to uh, what the U.S. government sees all the time as far as how we're operating. It's difficult, trust me. Uh, we don't make, we don't get as much money as others do, but our focus is to try to get the Syrian community to support United Assembly Appeal, not anyone else. Uh, and there's some monies that have come to us that we haven't taken because uh, that wasn't going to help the overall mission for us. It's not always about money. It's not about, about dollars. It's not that. But if you get yourself strong enough individually, you're capable. Being in tune and understanding that everything happens for a reason. If your long-term vision is a state... It doesn't have to be you getting everybody else. Moses has not entered the promised land. But you got to set the stage to get there. 50 years ago, the collective Australian community said, we're going to raise our brains in Iran. We're going to raise our military capacity in Iraq. We're going to have our supply capability in Syria tied to Lebanon. And we're going to close this corridor, which the Hittites fight over, which the Russians and Americans are fighting over, just like the French and the... Uh, uh, and the British fought over. But in this process, Iran fell, Iraq fell, Syria fell. Okay, where are we in the 43 countries that we have people? Where are we in Australia? We have a large number. They all have to vote by law. The government supports them knowing that they have to vote by law, but how many of those individuals are currently in the uh, government of Australia where's your prime minister sir? where's your leadership in the west and congress Australians, or in the, in the senate you have the people you could do it and where is their focus working together to ensure that there's an Australian state I have to give my kids grandkids an opportunity if they want to to go live in an Australian state that's where I'm successful. And if my focus is not there, and it's just to build my name, my organization, my capacity, my capability, uh, for me, it's useless at the end of the day. So that should be your vision. That should be your mission statement. And you got to get yourself strong enough where it's easier for me to work with somebody who comes to the table they're financially set, they're capable, they understand how to work as professionals, that there's consequences to the decisions you make. Uh, you weren't supposed to do this, you did it, you're fired. Get out of the organization. Or you can't find me, yes, go. Okay, take stock, take accountability. And if you don't achieve your goal, at least you will help your country that you're living in by producing the next set of professionals. They're very capable of um, giving an opportunity for their grandchildren to one day return because an Assyrian state will bring peace to the region. Everybody in the West knows that. Everybody in the East knows that. The Assyrians do not know who they are, have not taken stock of themselves, 
and do not believe in it, even the ones who say we're in Tanayim fly the same flag at a party. They believe nothing at it. And if you tell them, okay, go back, look at 20 years, what have you done to get us there? You realize if you just operate at Shotaputa level, if you just operate it at a you know, function level, you're not where you need to be. When I sit in front of the Office of Secretary of Defense, National Security Council, with CENCOM, with those folks, I speak country to country. I don't speak individual to a boss. And that's the way you can, uh, you can achieve success, whoever you are. I think that was wonderfully said. And on a final note, is there anything you would like to tell our worldwide audience of the Syrian podcast listeners? It's you are very capable. You're in 43 countries. Work smart. Uh, focus. Do not take the times of day and waste them on useless stuff. And if you are truly umtanaya and you unified, then you won't be bashing each other in the head. That's it. And it's not about you. Is about the angle. Everybody has a role to play. I cannot turn around and tell a carpeting carpet guy how to put in laying carpet on a floor. Let the military guy lead the military force. Let the strategic guy teach you how something is done. There's nothing into this role that is not known by anybody. There's no secrets anymore. Information doesn't make you powerful. Uh, be willing to step into the arena, be willing to fail, run for office if you're in the West, regardless, you'll learn lessons from it, and uh, do it on your own dime, with your own money, for your own people, because nobody else is going to do it for you. That's it. Lieutenant Colonel Sarga Sangari, thank you so much for your time. For our worldwide audience of Assyrian podcast listeners, thank you so much as well for listening to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast.